This is Joshua Malden from the Center of Theological Inquiry, and this is a Theology Matters podcast. And I'm here today virtually with Robert Gascoigne, who is Emeritus Professor of Theology at Australian Catholic University. And we're able to talk even though I'm in New Jersey and Robert is in Australia, and we found a time that works for both of us. Robert, you were at CTI this past fall, uh, fall of 2019, working on the topic of theology or religion and economic inequality. This past fall, of course, feels like a sort of whole generation ago because of what we're going through now with the pandemic. And we'll get later in the conversation to your own thinking about that. But before we get to that, talk a bit about the project that you were working on at CTI on religion and economic inequality, and how you as a Catholic theologian come at this issue. Yes, thank you, Joshua. Yeah, it was a pleasure and an honor to be at CTI for the um, the fall semester on this project of religion and economic inequality. And um, my own project was focused on the question of economic inequality and Catholic social teaching about solidarity. Uh, so I was attempting to draw together a, a number of things. Um, although I'm a theologian, obviously in this area, one needs to draw on the social sciences. So I was drawing to, to uh, a certain extent on, on recent um, social scientific um, studies of the uh, increasing inequality uh, in the world, particularly since 1980. For example, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century and books by John Gray and others, um, also theologically on Archbishop Welby's um, recent book, uh, Dethroning Mammon, uh, and on Catherine Tanner's work about uh, uh, revising, reconceiving the relationship between Christian faith in the Protestant tradition and work. Um, and relating uh, all of that uh, to Catholic social teaching, um, in particular, more recent teachings um, from the time of John Paul II, uh, his encyclical Solicitudo Re Socialis of 1987, uh, and his reflections on solidarity in that encyclical, um, his encyclical Centesimus Annus of 1991, in particular, reflecting on the situation after the fall of the Berlin Wall, whether or not um, capitalism would be, so to speak, the only show in town um, and the implications of that. Uh, and then also the, the teaching and also the symbolic gestures of Pope Francis on solidarity. Um, so that's a very general overview. Maybe speak more about this idea of solidarity. Um, for someone who hasn't heard much about it and doesn't know what it means, what is the kind of Catholic view of it, uh, a broad Christian view of solidarity, and how might you think about it regarding inequality? Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, it has to be noted, of course, that the, the actual word solidarity uh, has its uh, origin in the European labor movement of the 19th century. Um, and uh, the concept was taken up by the, by the papacy uh, with the development of Catholic social teaching from the late 19th century, in particular Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum on the condition of the working classes, 
But through the 20th century, um, the popes in their social encyclicals developed uh, the concept of solidarity, sometimes using different words for it, but it started to be called explicitly solidarity, particularly by John Paul II. And uh, of course, part of the background there is the solidarity movement in Poland, um, uh, and particularly during the 1980s, led by uh, Lech Wałęsa. Uh, but the concept of solidarity, or indeed the virtue of solidarity, um, is defined in this way by John Paul II, if I may quote from his encyclical, uh, Solicitudo Re Socialis, as he writes, the virtue of solidarity is not simply uh, a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say, to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all. Solidarity helps us to see the other, whether a person, people or nation, not just as some kind of instrument with a work capacity and physical strength to be exploited at low cost and then discarded when no longer useful, but as our neighbor, a helper to be made a sharer on a par with ourselves in the banquet of life to which all are equally invited by God. I know that's a fairly long quotation, but uh, I think it's helpful to see the richness of this idea, uh, beginning, as he says, with that uh, firm and persevering determination. We are all really responsible for all, and then ending with that great image that we're all uh, sharers in the banquet of life offered to us by God. How do we think about this idea of, or how do you think about this idea of inequality as a social problem in relation to debates about poverty, for some people they might be similar, but I, I take it that you're you're wanting to distinguish between the two and treat them as different moral problems. Yes, yes, that's an important point. The uh, redressing of poverty uh, is, of course, uh, always important for any Christian tradition, uh, and there are so many examples of that. We're talking about Catholic tradition specifically. So many examples uh, of uh, commitment to redress poverty. Uh, throughout church history, but with the question of inequality, we are looking at something different. Uh, and the the main point there um, is that, as a number of theologians, and Kenneth Himes and Kate Ward, for example, make a very good point in an article they've written, that uh, even if everyone has uh, sufficient for a decent life, uh, would it matter? if there was a stratospheric difference between um, most people uh, and uh, a minority of people who were immensely well off. And uh, they argue rightly that it, it would matter a lot because the, the point about inequality is that it undermines community. Um, if people live uh, in very different economic circumstances, uh, then they don't experience social community and we could talk about uh, all of the issues associated with lifestyle enclaves or people cut off from each other because of very different social experiences and so on. So radical inequality uh, undermines moral community and Catholic social teaching of course affirms the appropriateness and legitimacy 
of market economies, uh, so long as, as um, Daniel Finn, the, the distinguished uh, Catholic uh, economist and theologian emphasizes, so long as markets are defined by fences, uh, fences which um, give due weight to moral uh, imperatives such as solidarity or health or ecology and so on. So putting those right fences in the right place to ensure that we preserve uh, a due level of moral community. I'd like to get you to speak a bit about, you know, just some examples. You, you mentioned lifestyle enclaves and, enclaves and maybe to speak about examples in your own country of Australia where, you, where we can really see this, these kind of inequalities, you know, examples where we can see that breakdown in community happening. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, Australia has, uh, uh, it's historically somewhat in between the Northern European social democracies and the United States. It has a strong Labour Party tradition, but also a, a strong free market tradition. Uh, so it's very much a tussle in that sense. Uh, in terms of a specific example, recently it's very much one uh, to do with housing. Uh, traditionally, the level of home ownership uh, in Australia has been quite high, um, speaking uh, in terms of international comparisons. But recently, uh, it is becoming a lot lower. Uh, and there, in particular, in terms of our political debate, there's a lot of issues there to do with tax law. There are taxes that favour uh, investors uh, in terms of buying homes, what's called negative gearing, so that uh, investors can deduct the interest they, they pay on loans to, to buy investment properties, they can deduct that interest from their other income and thereby reduce their tax bill. Uh, whereas uh, first home buyers, young couples typically can't do that. Their mortgage has to be paid out of their earnings and, and it's not tax deductible. Um, there's also reductions in capital gains tax when investors uh, sell properties uh, that they've bought, areas like that. So in terms of tax law, in terms of intergenerational equality, there are increasingly important issues uh, emerging in Australia, which um, are against the, shall we say, the expectations are of home, home ownership that have prevailed uh, since World War II. Yeah. If we could pivot now to speak more about solidarity, but in regard to the, the topic that's on everyone's minds right now, which is the, the pandemic, it occurs to me that solidarity in a time of social distancing is a, a somewhat paradoxical concept. One of the ways we typically as human beings deal with tragedies is to gather together. And this is a time when we can't do that, at least not physically. So get you to speak maybe to that and just in general, how you're thinking about this time and also how you might think about economic inequality during this time. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Well, first of all, if I might touch on the question of economic inequality, um, I think uh, one of the key experiences, and of course we're all simply coming to, attempting to come to terms with this uh, because it's a, a new and rapidly escalating situation, but one of the, I think, key experiences is how uh, more low-paid people uh, are becoming, in a sense, the foundation of social bonds uh, and of um, being able to cope in this situation. For example, 
uh, checkout staff in supermarkets, the staff who stock supermarket shelves all night while we're asleep, bus drivers, train drivers, uh, and so on. And of course, healthcare staff ranging from the, the less well paid, such as nurses, to the, the very well paid, such as specialist doctors, all making an extraordinary contribution. So uh, certainly there's a, a refocusing, I think, happening for us all about, well, what really bind society together, what, what helps us to survive. And questions of equality uh, certainly emerge there. Also for teachers who are currently in, in Australia with various situations in various states, but teachers are, are currently still expected to, to teach, to, to look after the children of essential workers. Uh, and so the role of teachers is also highlighted. But moving on to the question of solidarity and social distancing, well, just to note, there have been some um, recent important statements and, and insights that I might um, just mention. Recently, um, the Catholic theologian Gerald Beyer uh, on the Catholic Moral Theology site spoke about, and he's written quite a lot on solidarity, uh, emphasising that at the moment solidarity requires being physically apart, as as he, he cites John Paul II. Solidarity means we are all really responsible for all, uh, and so in this particular situation, to maintain social distancing is an act of solidarity. Mm. However, well we might personally feel mm. it's all about solidarity uh, for those who are more vulnerable. And the Jesuit theologian Andrea Vicini, in a recent article in Civiltà Cattolica, emphasizes, in a sense, we've got a, an unsought solidarity at the moment, an experiential closeness, because we all share this predicament. And of course, the moral challenge is out of that unsought solidarity to, to morally generate a moral solidarity. Uh, and so to, if you like, to convert this unsought pandemic situation into a, a genuine commitments to solidarity. In terms of more official um, Vatican statements, there's recently been March the 30th, there was a statement from the Pontifical Academy for Life titled Global Pandemic and Universal Brotherhood. And this, this statement notes that the, the change from de facto interdependence to chosen solidarity is not an automatic transformation. So in a sense, somewhat similar to what um, Virginia is saying, we are all interdependent in this predicament, but in the moral sense, uh, the challenge is to make it a chosen solidarity. Uh, and in a striking way, um, the statement says, an emergency like that of COVID-19 is overcome with, above all, the antibodies of solidarity. Uh, just uh, a week ago, on 27th of March, um, Pope Francis um, made a very striking statement and symbolic gesture in his Urbi et Orbi speech which he gave standing alone um, in the middle of St. Peter's Square. Uh, and he took as his text the, the storm at sea when the disciples are, are frightened uh, and, and they fear being drowned and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples say to Jesus, teacher, do you not care if we perish? And the Pope notes that, do you not care about me is one of the 
uh, most heartrending things that uh, a person can say to um, companions or loved ones, because that is, is something particularly talking about the scripture passage, um, because Jesus more than anyone cares about us. Uh, so that theme of how much do we care for each other uh, is addressed. And then he goes on to speak about the, the life of the spirit, how our lives are woven together, sustained by ordinary people, often forgotten people, uh, who without doubt are writing uh, the decisive events of our time. So again, all of those people that sustain and society and help society to simply to to function and indeed to survive. And he concludes um, that the Lord asks us that in the midst of our tempest, invites us to reawaken and put into practice solidarity and hope. So just in those recent statements and contributions, both from the, the Pope, from the Vatican, from those two Catholic theologians I mentioned, there's a, as one would expect, a lot of thinking about well, what is solidarity in the, in the midst of this sudden and very demanding situation? Before we talked today, I, I pulled up some of your articles online and I came across a very interesting article you wrote in 2015 in Commonweal called Shared Commitments, Not All Secularists Are Anti-Religious. But you begin by talking about a former prime minister of Australia, uh, Whitlam. Uh, who had recently died at 98 years when you wrote the article. But I was uh, very intrigued to come on the third page that you you do a, you uh, include a reading of Albert Camus' The Plague, which is now uh, a new bestseller. And it's a profound uh, it's a profound back and forth that you that you um, highlight here regarding you know the doctor who is in, in a sense sacrificing himself as so many medical doctors are now. Um, and this particular doctor is not a believer. You know, there's debate, there's a d- dialogue in the in the text about, you know, what's his reason for sacrificing himself. And your whole point in the argument of the article, of course, is that um, non-religious people can, in a sense, have religious commitments, sort of moral commitments that are religious in nature. But maybe you could speak a bit about that and even about that that particular passage, which I found to be very profound. Uh, yes, thank you, Josh. Uh, yes, well, that, the, the article was about, uh, well, if you like, the, um, the, the Prime Minister you mentioned, um, Gough Whitlam, was someone who brought up in a, a very uh, faith-filled um, Protestant family. His sister became a, a Protestant minister, but he himself saw himself uh, as uh, an agnostic. But as he said, uh, in the twist of a Cold War phrase, he said he was a fellow traveller of Christianity. And so I'm reflecting on, on his life, because he had died, as you mentioned, just before I wrote the article, to look at the question of agnosticism, uh, its moral commitments and the relationship to Christian faith. Uh, and uh, as you note, there is that um, very profound uh, passage in Camus' The Plague, where the, uh, the atheist doctor recognises that all his efforts uh, as he says, a, a never-ending defeat. And he honestly recognises that, while at the same time, of course, maintaining his zeal and his commitment in Catholic theology, especially after Vatican II, that, that is recognised as an implicit form of, of faith in God. Pope Benedict XVI developed that very powerfully uh, in his uh, encyclicals and, and 
Deus Caritas Est, uh, and uh, Space Salvi, his encyclical on hope, emphasizing that, that love expressed in that way is indeed a, a form of faith. Um, but it's interesting to note that um, just on that very point, that the um, uh, statement from the Pontifical Academy for Life that I've mentioned does um, perhaps the writer uh, was someone who had Camus' The Plague in mind, concludes with a par- this paragraph, if I may read that. Even someone who does not share the profession of this faith can in any case draw from the witness of this universal brotherhood insights that point towards the best part of the human condition. Humanity that for the sake of life as an unwaveringly common good does not abandon the field in which human beings love and toil together earns the gratitude of all and the respect of God. So in that conclusion, the statement is certainly affirming the doctor in Camus' The Plague. But if I could note in terms of great works of literature about plagues, um, there's also, as you might very well know, the uh, one of the Pope's favourite novels, uh, The Betrothed, by the great Italian writer mm. Alessandro Manzoni, uh, written in the early 19th century. And then in The Betrothed, there's a terrible plague in Milan, uh, and that is also uh, explored in the novel in its moral dimensions. It's a long time since I've read it, so I can't uh, speak about it in detail, but... Um, uh, the bishop of, or the archbishop of Milan in particular, is portrayed as a uh, as a hero of the situation, Federigo Borromeo. Well, thanks, Robert. I think that's uh, very profound, and um, I think we can leave it there. But thank you so much, both for you know being at CTI and enriching our conversation on religion and economic inequality, and for thinking you know in the moment about this new pandemic world that we're we're in. Thank you, Josh. It's a great pleasure. And it was a pleasure and an honor to be at CTI. Thank you. Thanks, Robert.